Transmitter device activated. Coordinate set for Earth 2. Hey everyone, welcome to the Earth 2 podcast, the podcast that explores the origins and development of the DC Comics multiverse and the legacy of their Golden Age characters throughout the Silver and the Bronze Ages of comics. I'm Peter Watson. And I'm David Steele. Welcome back. Thank you for joining us. Legacy is the focus of this week's episode, isn't that right, PC? Mm, absolutely, yes. Yep. And today's episode is prompted by the publication on the 28th of April 1970 of issue 91 of DC's long-running tryout title, Showcase, mm -hmm. which features a strip entitled Manhunter 2070. And in every single conversation Pete and I have had at the preparation for this episode, I have called it Manhunter 2020. So I deserve a Gosh. round of applause for getting Hooray. that right. Yes. <laughs> so, using this issue of Showcase as our springboard, we are going to be discussing today several of the Manhunters that were published by DC and Quality Comics Mm -hmm. Back in the day, there may be a few surprises. Oh, there certainly shall be, yes. So, Pete uh -huh. using the, the two Golden Age Manhunters, who you're obviously you're going to tell us about, first of all, in a moment. Yes. Let's do the usual thing. Can you remember when you first encountered either of the two, shall we say, main Golden Age Manhunters? Paul Kirk, the one in the red with the blue-grey face mask. I first remember seeing that look of the Manhunters. I don't know whether he was actually in it, I can't remember offhand, in the two-part Steve Englehart Justice League of America story. Okay. Yeah, which uh, features the robot Manhunters. This is very spoilery for the future, but a version of the Paul Kirk Manhunter also appears in Secret Society of Supervillains very early on, and that's something that I did read when I was very young. And uh, yeah, I really enjoyed that. The Dan Richards one, the one in blue, I remember from turning up in an issue of All-Star Squadron uh, where he basically confronts the other Manhunter and they have this kind of a discussion saying, I'm Manhunter, no, I'm Manhunter. And <laughs> saying, well, we should have a discussion about who's got the right to the name. Uh, and then that's all that ever came of that, really. So, but yeah, that's that's my memories of first encountering the Manhunters. Yeah, I remember the confrontation between the two, the two of them. I remember reading that at some point. I think the first time I encountered, I can't remember precisely. Again, I think it must have been an issue of Young All Stars in the mm -hmm. summer of '87. I have a feeling when I became aware of the the Dan Richards Manhunter, and the fact he had a dog, I took, remember taking to him very quickly. I thought, oh, he's got yeah. a dog. That's excellent. <laughs> the quality heroes don't really turn up too much in All Star Squadron. No, true. Apart from obviously a couple of issues around about issue thirty odd, which we'll talk about in due course. And of mm -hmm. course, we'll meet some more of the quality characters in a couple of years in the GLA. But yes, yeah, so, Manhunters then. So, Pete do you want to tell everyone and myself what you've dug up and what you've put together about the two Golden Age Manhunter characters? Yes, I found some really interesting stuff while digging into this Manhunter legacy. Now, the first time the name Manhunter was used was actually in a DC comic. It was Paul Kirk Manhunter. Right? Mm -hmm. Which is a series that ran for 15 issues in Adventure Comics from issue 58 to 72. That's the 5th of December 1940 to the 30th of January 1942. Now, this version of Paul Kirk was a non-costumed investigator who helped police solve crimes. Now, it's unclear from what I've read if he was an actual police detective or not. So he may have just been okay. one of these enthusiastic amateurs you had back in the Golden Age. Now, the word Manhunter in the title was just a name describing Paul Kirk's role and wasn't actually a character name, nickname, or alias used by Paul Kirk in the series. And the final issue of Adventure Comics to feature a Paul Kirk Manhunter story was issue 72. Bear that in mind. Now, right. <laughs> from there, 
I'm going to jump to quality comics. Okay. Now, the quality comics version of a character called Manhunter was Donald Richards, better known as Dan Richards. Now, he had 92 appearances between Police Comics 8, that's the 9th of January 1942, and Police Comics 101, 7th of June 1950. That's how long he ran for. Wow, that's fantastic. Yeah, his backstory is he graduated at the Boston Police Academy class and his girlfriend, Kit Kelly, was very disappointed because her brother Jim took top honours. But when Jim refused to kill someone for a crooked politician, he was framed for murder. Now, Dan first took on this Manhunter identity to track down the real killer using secret files he'd gathered and known criminals to help clear his friend's name. Thereafter, Dan became Manhunter whenever ordinary legal procedures proved inadequate to solve a mystery. As he once said, Manhunter might get something on them where police methods fail. Now, this version of Manhunter was quite unique in the fact that he had a dog as a partner. Thor the Thunder Dog. Fantastic. Automatically makes him one of my favourite <laughs> superheroes of all time, despite the fact I've read Indeed. about two stories. <laughs> <laughs> he seems to be a kind of a mixed breed of, sort of part hound and part mastiff. Now, Thor was always within hearing whenever Dan walked his beat, and the dog would come when his master blew a supersonic whistle. Now, often Richards made use of Thor's keen tracking abilities, as well as his training as an attack dog. Now, Although he had no superpowers, this version of Manhunter was trained well as a fighter and a gymnast. He was very strong and tough as well as agile, and criminals learned to fear his physical abilities as well as his remarkable detective skill. And they found as much to fear from Thor's keen nose and sharp fangs. <laughs> Gosh. Now, back to DC. Yes. <laughs> You're going to be surprised at this, because... The previous Paul Kirk Manhunter ran up to issue 72 of Adventure Comics. Now, in issue 73, a new Manhunter series began right. by Joe Simon and Jack Kirby. Yes. Now, this Manhunter's real name was Rick Nelson. Okay. He was a former big game hunter turned superhero. Now, he had a red costume with a cowl-style mask instead of the full blue-grey face mask that we would associate with Manhunter. In fact... He actually appears on the front cover of issue 73 of Adventure Comics with that mask. Now, Nelson's friend, Police Inspector Donovan, told him that criminals were more dangerous than all the beasts Nelson had hunted. Now, Rick considered the idea of hunting criminals himself as a new challenge. And after Donovan was killed by a costume criminal named the Buzzard, Rick donned a Manhunter costume and brought the Buzzard to justice. Excellent. By the way, the Buzzard was an amazing villain design. It was kind of like a creepy, skinny version of the Green Goblin. Okay. Years before the Green Goblin. It was right. fantastic. Interesting. That was issue 73 of Adventure Comics. Now, <laughs> issue 74, things get a bit interesting. In issue 74 appears another Manhunter called Paul Kirk. Right. Who is not related at all to the first Paul Kirk we were talking oh, really? about. Oh, really? Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. I mean, I, I knew that there were... I knew that had been the first Paul Kirk, and then there was mm -hmm. some resumption with Paul Kirk. I'd, I'd always just assumed they were the same person. Yeah, apparently not, no. Wow. Because this, this Paul Kirk basically is the same as Rick Nelson. He's a big game hunter. Mm -hmm. And basically, every site that I can see lists uh, Rick Nelson and Paul Kirk being the same person, just renamed. Oh, right. So they say it's the same Manhunter, right? Now, right. He had 19 other Golden Age appearances between Adventure Comics 74 in February 1942 and Adventure Comics 92, and that was in 26th of April 1944. Right. Uh, Simon and Kirby left the feature after issue 80. But this version 
He had the familiar red costume with the full blue-grey face mask. Uh-huh. He was an Olympic-level athlete who so relied on his hunting skills in hand-to-hand combat. Now, here's the thing, as I said, it's a different name and a different look to the one from Adventure Comics 73. Mm. And for that reason, I'm proposing that the Rick Nelson Manhunter is an entirely different character, maybe in another Earth, or maybe a big game-hunting pal of Paul Kirk's, who uh, then took on the mantle from him. Yeah! So... When we do our DC comic, I think we should cover the death or retirement of Rick Nelson and the passing <laughs> of the torch to Paul Kirk. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. Yeah, because that's obviously what was to happen. So uh, that's really interesting. So it was Rick Nelson for one issue and then yeah. and then Paul Kirk. And that's, that's obviously presumably run about the same time that Joe and Jack worked their magic on, on the Sandman. Yeah. Uh-huh. And changed him from the guy in the gas mask to the guy in the purple and yellow spandex. That's very interesting. Yep, Sandman's running alongside uh, Manhunter in Adventure Comics at that very yeah. time. So yeah, it's fascinating. Interesting. But as I said, he's on the front cover of of issue 73, mm-hmm. and it's a starkly different mask. The rest of the costume's the same, but the mask is entirely different, and it's really striking. Right. I, I honestly do believe that it's a different character altogether. Interesting. And that means that technically there were four different Golden Age Manhunters. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Although one of them was Manhunter in comic strip title only. But yeah, he was a detective and nothing to do with big game hunting. It's weird. The fact that the first Manhunter is just a policeman mm. and that's just the name of the strip, that kind of ties into something else that we will talk about later in the episode, really, doesn't it? Yes, indeed. So when looking into this Rick Nelson Manhunter, I checked the reprints of the stories right. that are featured in the issues of New Gods that Jack Kirby did in the early 70s. Of course, the glorious era of the 52 pages. Yes, they're fantastic. There were reprints throughout his titles. Mm-hmm. In Jimmy Olsen, you had reprints of the Newsboy Legion from issues 141 to 148. From issues 4 to 9 of Forever People, we had Sandman, which is incredible. Wesley Dodds, mm-hmm. yeah. Mr. Miracle, issue 4 to issue 8, had Boy Commando reprints. Mm-hmm. And New Gods itself had reprints of Manhunter. Now, the weird thing is, the other ones have all been collected subsequently. However, the Manhunter stories have not been collected. Oh, that's a point, actually, yeah. Which is absolutely gutting. I've I've got the two hardback volumes of the, the Newsboy Legion stories, because mm-hmm. I love the Guardian and the Newsboys. I don't think I've got the Boy Commandos ones. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've got the Wesley Dodds ones, obviously. I've got a nice French edition, actually, that reprints some of them in black and oh, white. Bon, d'accord. <laughs> it's weird that Jack Kirby's Manhunter stories weren't collected in the same way. Yeah, although him and Joe Simon didn't do all of them, you know, I think they did more than half, right. which is, you know, at least a dozen stories. So, you know, it's right. it would definitely be a nice collection. Yeah. But the earlier ones were reprinted in New Gods from issues four to issue nine. Now, the first story that we just talked about, the Rick Nelson Manhunter. Yes. When I read that in New Gods, the lettering has been changed. So instead of Rick Nelson, it says Paul Kirk. He's called Elastic Man. <laughs> <laughs> yep, it's exactly the same situation as the MF Enterprises Captain Marvel, yes. So they represented the Rick Nelson one as a Paul Kirk story? Yes. Although they didn't change his mask or any of the artwork. And it, was right. qu- it would be quite a simple job just to make it the blue face. Instead, they've got the, the cowl. That's fascinating. I bet our friend on Twitter, the Multiverse Historian, has, has some theories about that. Oh, I'm sure he has. I'm sure he has. If you're listening to this episode of Multiverse Historian, hit us up with some Manhunter articles that we can retweet, because I'd like to read what you have to say about them. Indeed, yes. That is amazing. That suggests, if you take it even just in face value, that's a new adventure for Paul Kirk mm-hmm. that's identical to the, the adventure the other guy had. <laughs> so that, that opens up 
All sorts of potentials about other arts and stuff, doesn't it? Mm. I'm definitely convinced that Rick Delsom's a separate Manhunter, and I'll take that to my grave. <laughs> Aye, I would agree with you. I would agree with you. That is interesting. I'm repeating myself, but it is. That's fascinating. I have to say, <laughs> they're characters that I'm not very familiar with. Mm-hmm. There obviously was the, the DC crossover Millennium, yeah. which expanded and made great use of the Manhunters. Mm-hmm. Listeners will probably talk a little bit more about the Millennium crossover when we, when we do the, the aforementioned Manhunter Robots story in Justice League. Oh, we'll get yes. to that. We'll probably talk about Ma- Millennium a little bit more then. And Millennium is actually, it's a, it's a crossover that I'm familiar with, but I don't think I've ever actually mm-hmm. read it all through myself. Certainly not all of the crossovers. Vaguely familiar with what it was about. But the Manhunters are characters that I've never really invested in. They didn't really use them too much in All-Star Squadron. There was never really an issue where they, mm-hmm. they got the spotlight or, you know, stepped forward. Mm-hmm. I know there's an issue of Secret Origins that covers them. I, I will have read that at some point. Oh, yes. Uh-huh. From our point of view, from Peter and I's point of view, this is a very, a very interesting episode, at the very least, because all sorts mm-hmm. of stuff we've sort of dug out and noticed and gone, ooh, that's interesting. And one of the things that Pete dug out and noticed is the first story that we're going to do. In this episode. Indeed, this is from Police Comics issue 97. Published on the 12th of October 1949, so at the tail end of the, the decade, is quite a lot of superheroes had already dropped by the wayside by this point. Mm-hmm. And there is a reason that we're covering this particular story. See if you can guess what it is. Yes, the reason we're covering it is because it's only six pages long. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you'll be able to tell this one, I'm sure, very quickly. So the cover of Police Comics 97 is quite amusing. It's a Plastic Man cover mm. featuring his pal Wizzy Winks and a character called Mime Master of Makeup. And it's uh-huh. basically set in, obviously, Mime's costume change area. And he's holding up a Plastic Man costume, but he's not aware that the sort of decorative floor mat that he's standing on appears to be either the rest of Plastic Man hanging off the costume or Plastic Man himself. <laughs> Fascinating, but obviously that ain't the story we're doing. No. We're doing the aforementioned Manhunter's story. Mm-hmm. So, shall we leap into it without further ado? Let's do so. There's no official title ascribed to the story in the, the pages of Police Comics 97, but Pete, see, you've been, you've been referring to it under a title in our conversations, haven't you? What have you been calling it? Mike's Amazing World of Comics refers to this story as... Manhunters Double. Ooh! There we are. So yes, listeners, that might have given you an idea of what it's about. Interesting. So, the story begins. We have a large panel which takes up approximately two-thirds of the page. The Manhunter logo at the top. And we see the Dan Richards Manhunter. His, his costume is basically an all-in-one blue body stocking with trunks. He wears a blue domino mask. He wears blue boots. And in this panel, he's fighting. Well, he's fighting someone else who appears to be identical wearing the same outfit, it looks the same. Thor is in the background looking a little nonplussed as to what's going on, and a caption says, A fight to the finish, but which one is Manhunter, and who will win? Nobody knows, yet. And our story proper begins in panel two, that has a caption that says, As Officer Dan Richards returns from duty. Here we see Dan on the street, in his policeman's uniform, and he's with one of his colleagues, and one of his colleagues has spotted a blue-costumed figure running up a short flight of stairs into a building. Dan's colleague says, You always complain that you've never seen Manhunter in person, Dan. Look, there he goes into the headquarters building. What? What? Come on in and meet him. He's a swell guy, best friend we cops ever had. That's in panel three, which shows Dan's police colleague looking very smiley and pleased to see Manhunter. But Dan, standing behind him, looks very thoughtful as he contemplates, That man in uniform is an imposter, because I am Manhunter. Panel four... They're going inside headquarters building. They're running along the corridor. And they pass a superior officer who's always in a hurry going the opposite direction. Dan's pal says, Captain, 
Didn't Manhunter come in? And the captain replies, Quick, you two, and everyone else not an assignment, into the riot cars. We're going across town to the big river bridge. It's in danger. The first panel of page two shows a couple of police cars racing through the city streets with a siren wailing. And over the police radio, a voice says, Manhunter reported that some terrorists have laid a big explosive charge to blow that bridge to kingdom come. Panel two shows some police officers forming a cordon on the bridge as the sun sets in the background. Very... Very attractive panel. Mm. Take a drink, almost, listeners. Police forming a sort of human cordon to stop vehicles and pedestrians going onto the bridge. The police captain is seen giving the instruction. Form a line. Keep all traffic off the bridge now. A volunteer to help me locate the explosives. And our plucky own Dan Richards pipes up saying, I'll volunteer, Captain. Panel three. <laughs> the narrative is taking a taking a significant leap already. And so has Dan. He's tied a bit of rope to the side of the bridge because he's swung down. Because he has clocked a little box labelled dynamite down on part of the bridge structure. As he spins down, he says to the captain, I've spotted it, sir. Stand by to help bring me up. Careful, Richards. It may be time to go off at any moment. So they've got the box back up on the bridge properly in the next panel. They've opened it up. And what has Dan found inside? Well, he says, this isn't dynamite, just plain bricks. Not even very good ones. And the chief's got a piece of paper. And he says, and this note. Look what it says. We see in the next panel Dan reading the note, and we can see that the note says, Not much of a joke, but it seemed to have fooled the police, and it's signed Manhunter. Dan says in shock, Impossible! Manhunter couldn't have! But then he thinks quickly, Dope! Better keep still, or I'll betray my secret. We have a caption for the next panel that says, Returning to headquarters! Yes, we'll see a conference of senior policemen. The captain is saying, That explosive tip of Manhunter's was only a silly joke. I took the reserves and... The police commissioner, who's wearing a very attractive green suit and a green hat, he says, Yes, Captain, and while the reserves were at the bridge, bandits robbed the Fidelity National Bank. The commissioner turns to the other person that's having a little meeting. He's a very thin-faced, serious-looking chap in a brown suit and a brown hat. The commissioner says, Why should Manhunter play such a stupid trick, Inspector? Inspector replies, Maybe to occupy our reserves while the robbery was being staged, Commissioner. That makes sense. The conversation continues in the first panel of the next page, as the Commissioner says, Manhunter, in with crooks? Impossible. He's always been a brilliant fighter on the side of the law. Sometimes the minds of brilliant people become unsettled. Anyway, let's make him explain. Yes, I'd like to hear his reasons for doing what he did. Then Inspector says to the Captain, Captain, send out an order. I want Manhunter brought in for questioning. The caption then for panel three of page three says, Leaving headquarters, Officer Richard seeks privacy, and... Yes, we see Dan behind a big, tall, white wooden fence, taking off his police uniform. He's wearing his Manhunter uniform underneath. He's already got his mask in place. And Thor is nearby. Thor barks with a cheerful, Arf! And Dan Richard's Manhunter says, Come along, Thor. Let's go to that bridge and pick up the trail of the man who palmed himself off as the real Manhunter. Wouldn't it be amusing if it was Paul Kirk? <laughs> <laughs> or what was it? What did you say the, the guy in issue 73 of Adventure was called? Rick Nelson. Or Rick Nelson. Be good if it was him, wouldn't it? That'd be funny. He's a bit better. <laughs> so, a slow dissolve, essentially, in panel four. We're back at the bridge. We can see Thor having a sniff at the box of bricks. Dan is standing over it. Manhunter standing over it, saying, Whoever planted this package is probably connected with the fake Manhunter. And coming in from the side, it's Dan's police pal who we met earlier on. And he runs in saying, There he is, Begora. Return to the scene of his crime. Panel 5 is quite amusing. 
because <laughs> it just shows Dan and Thor exiting sort of stage left <laughs> as the unnamed Irish police pal of Dan's rushes to a nearby phone and makes a call into headquarters, saying, Yes, Captain. Manhunter himself at the bridge and heading uptown. I'll follow him quiet-like while you collect some more of the boys. Panel six. We're back with Dan and Thor. They're, well, very helpfully, Dan says. A blank wall, Thor. Do you think the trail follows the ladder upwards? Is that it? And it seems as though Thor has picked up a scent from the box. Mm. And that's what they followed. That seems to be it because Thor very affirmatively barks, woof, woof, and he's looking up at a ladder hanging down from the side of the building. Mm -hmm. Thor barks, arf, in the next panel as Dan starts to climb up the ladder. And Dan says back to his canine pal, that's right, stay there while I check up on what's topside. First panel then of page four shows that Dan has climbed up the ladder and he's peeking in an open window. We hear a voice coming out. We killed two birds with one stone, took the bank for a nice chunk of dough and made a monkey out of that law-loving manhunter. And we're inside the building in panel two. And we see the fake manhunter. He's taken off his mask, ruffling up his hair. He's got a couple of cohorts. It's like a thin guy in a green suit with dark hair. A rotund gentleman with blonde hair and another kind of very sharp, almost Prince Namor featured guy in a brown suit who's polishing his gun in the background. The fake Manhunter, for that's what he seems to be, continues by saying, By now the police reserves have found that while they were looking for the bomb that wasn't there, the bank was robbed. And the large, blonde accomplice says, Maybe we should have kept Manhunter's reputation up for him, makeup. Next time the cops see you in that rig, they'll ask you some unpleasant questions. Makeup, that's what he calls him. That's very interesting. Mm -hmm. Given what we're saying about the baddie that Plastic Man was fighting on the cover. Oh, yeah, true. Mm -hmm. In panel three, we can see that Makeup, he's rubbing a towel at his face. He seems to have removed the wig that made him look like Dan Richards, Manhunter. He's obviously wiping some more makeup off his face. His pals are taking their leave as he says, Don't worry, I can impersonate somebody else next time. The mayor, the police commissioner. Leave it to me, Lumpy. And Lumpy, who's obviously the Boris Johnson lookalike guy, says as he leaves, OK, makeup, we'll go into the next room to count the cabbage. Dan is claiming the window in the background as all this is going on. He confronts makeup in panel four, saying, So they call you makeup, eh? Well, I'll mark your face so you won't be able to change it. Manhunter, stay away from me, or... And Dan cuts him over the punch to the face, right hook, and he says, Now I can impersonate a study in still life. Dan goes into the next room in the next panel. We can see Lumpy and the guy in the brown suit. And Lumpy sat at the table counting the cash that they got from the bank robbery. Dan is entering as Lumpy is saying, 900, one grand, one grand. And But then the guy in the brown suit clocks Dan coming in and he says, Is that makeup or? No, it's Manhunter, cries Dan, a.k.a. the real Manhunter, as he lunges forward, punches the guy in the brown suit. Lumpy cries, Marbles! Help me pulverise the guy. And the green suit goon moves forward. Marbles is now struggling with Dan in the first panel of page five. As Lumpy picks up a chair and brings it towards him, Manhunter says, Are you wrestling or waltzing? And Lumpy says, Hold him so I can pile drive him. As he brings the chair, swings it forward. But then Dan twists around and it's Marbles, the guy in the green suit who gets struck with a chair that actually breaks on him. Marbles cries, Ow! Poor soul. As Dan reaches forward and grabs Lumpy and lifts him off the ground, saying, Everybody's down but you, buddy, so make it unanimous. And it actually looks like he's either grabbed him and swung him round or flipped him. Very confusing, but very, very exciting at the same time. 
panel 3 of page 5, we're back outside the building, and it looks as though the police captain has spotted Thor, for he says, There's the mutt Manhunter usually has with him. He must be in this building. Thor doesn't say much at this point. He just stands there. His expression is inscrutable <laughs> at this distance, but I wonder if he's a little bit annoyed. The police inspector says, Around to the front and up the stairs. Because he directs a couple of the other officers who are there. Now, panel four, the police officers and the inspector arrive into the apartment that the bad guys have been using. We see Dan sat at the table counting the money. And Dan says, Hmm, the haul from the Fidelity National Bank. Enough to, but he's cut off as the inspector enters. The inspector says, Enough to send you up the river for a long stretch, Manhunter. When did you turn bank robber? The next panel, we're back with makeup in the other room who's putting on his Manhunter mask and lifting up his wig. The inspector's voice comes through from the open door. This money is in fidelity packages. Start explaining, Manhunter. And as makeup is getting ready, he says, He has the police out there, but I can trick them again. Quick, the mask and wig. Panel 6, we see Lumpy being taken off by a police officer in the background and the police captain and the inspector confronting our Manhunter, who's saying, It's quite an unusual story, Inspector. You may find it hard to believe, but he's cut off. As makeup enters the room and says from off panel, Naturally you will, because it's a lie. This man in my clothes is an imposter. He's properly revealed in the final panel of page five, standing opposite the inspector and opposite Dan, as the inspector says, You? Who? And makeup says, I'm the real Manhunter. This crook impersonated me, planted the fake bomb to draw the police reserves away from the bank at the time the robbery took place. A couple of policemen grab hold of Dan Richards' Manhunter on the first panel of page six. Dan struggles and says, Why are you grabbing me? The other fellow's the fake Manhunter. And Makeup sort of smirks to himself. He covers his, his laugh by putting his hand up to his mouth and he thinks, This is turning out better than I hoped. And then he says to the cops, Of course he'd say that. Hold him tight. He's slippery. So we see in panel two, Dan Manhunter being held tightly by a police officer as Thor comes in the open doorway. Dan thinks, If they get this mask off... I'll be recognised as Dan Richards. And Makeup says, Look at him struggle, Inspector. Doesn't that show he's guilty? In the next panel, Thor leaps up, barking, Arf! Leaps up towards Dan, puts his paws up on his chest, delightedly wagging his tail. And Dan says, Thor boy, you know the difference between the real Manhunter and the imitation. And at that, we see Makeup, well, making for the door. Mm. Panel four, he's trying to escape, saying, I've got to get out. But Thor has jumped for him. Jumped on his back as Dan Richards' Manhunter runs forward saying, Get him, Thor! Pin him down! In the next panel, Dan has grabbed a hold of makeup, pulled off his wig and his mask, so he stands revealed. Thor's obviously standing growling, barking. And Dan turns to the inspector and says, Makeup! The impersonator! His story was true except that he was pretending to be me! Wake up his friends and they'll confess! The inspector says, Our apologies, Manhunter. Your dog is a top-flight character witness, but... When do we see you without your mask? And Dan replies in the next panel, Someday, maybe, when there's no reason to mask myself against crime. And with that, he and Thor make for the door, showing makeup still being held by policemen and inspect looking very thoughtful. The final panel, back outside, Dan is putting on his police uniform again, over his uniform, as he's saying to his doggy, You've proved it for the thousandth time, Thor, old boy. Manhunter wouldn't be much of a success without you. To which Thor replies, Arf! And we're missing a caption, but that's... The, the end. end.
That was fun. Yeah, that was interesting. And obviously, listeners, mm. you'll have figured out the reason we decided to do it was because Dan Richards encountered another manhunter. <laughs> <laughs> another hero encounters a duplicate version of himself, kind, kind of, of maybe, of. if you squint a little bit. Yeah. Am I right in thinking that we've done a story before when someone meets a, a fake version of themselves that doesn't really count, or am I confusing myself? The, the two robot men, that was a similar one. Yes, yeah, so that's exactly what I'm thinking of. Mm-hmm. Of course it is. Of course <laughs> it is. Sorry. So, yeah, lots of fun in that one. I really enjoyed that. Yeah, it really makes me want to read some more Dan Richards Manhunter stories, and it's a shame that, you know, that DC mm. just can't get their finger out and reprint everything in an easily accessible form. Come on. Or even get it on the DC Infinite app. That'd be great. Something like that would be tremendous. Oh, well. Dan Richards' Manhunter will return in the future. Probably not for a very, very long time. Yes. And obviously, Mm -hmm. there are some other Manhunters still to discuss. Mm. We're going to do another story for you now, but we're jumping forward to 1956. Indeed, to a comic that was published on the 6th of September 1956. Issue 5 of DC's anthology book showcase now if you're paying attention that's two months after the first publication of issue four of showcase which introduced barry allen as the flash so technically you could say we've nudged slightly into the silver age now yes do you want to tell everyone what the cover feature is for issue five of showcase and see if they can guess why we're talking about it yes it's showcase presents manhunters plural (laughs) <laughs> yes. Now, sadly, this is not a revival of Paul Kirk and Dan Richards. And Rick Nelson and the other Paul Kirk. Rick Nelson, who went on to become a pop star, obviously. <laughs> this Manhunter strip is basically three very enjoyable, very exciting, three police procedural stories. Mm-hmm. Similar to what Pete was saying about the initial sort of Paul Kirk, where Manhunter was just in the name of the strip, but he was sort of fighting crimes and that without using the name. Manhunters, none of the, the three sort of featured leads in any of the stories use that title yeah but they are three very very enjoyable police procedurals now where we are in 1970 it's kind of the beginnings of that glorious early bronze age period when dc comics were starting to dig into their archives the dc special comic book had started by this point mm-hmm. and throughout the, the length of its run it reprints an awful lot of classic material but issue 10 has the sort of headline stop you can't beat the law and that issue basically reprints a whole bunch of exciting sort of police procedural stories including two of the stories from issue five of Showcase. So if you don't have a copy of Showcase Presents Showcase, or you don't have a copy of issue five Mm -hmm. of Showcase in your collection, if you can track down a copy of DC Special Issue 10, you'll be able to read two of the stories that are in that issue of Showcase. But Pete and I, through, you know, a level bit of discussion, have decided to do the one story from Showcase Issue 5 that isn't reprinted in DC Special Issue 10. It's the cover feature, which Pete's now going to tell you about. Yes, as I said, it says Showcase Presents Manhunters, and we are up a tower. There are two people struggling. There is a guy in a loaded yellow suit who is wrestling a guy in a purple outfit with green socks, and he's trying to push him off of a railing to his doom. Mm. And this guy in the brown outfit, as well as his green socks, also has an oxygen tank on his back and an oxygen tube covering his mouth yes what could be happening there and the guy in the lurid yellow suit is saying without oxygen you can't stand this high altitude lawman this is your last manhunt so there we go manhunters you see (laughs) yay and we have a caption box that tells us the three stories that are contained within and it says featuring the human eel also the two faces of mr x and greatest villain of all time 
So the story we're going to do is, the, as we say, the cover feature, The Human Eel. The other two stories, The Two Faces of Mr. X, features an actor who's roped in by the, the law services to impersonate a bad guy so they can scupper a plan that's going on. There's a fascinating panel, which I sent to Peter and Jess, sort of going, look, it's a previously unknown, unknown soldier prototype where the hero's covered, his face is covered <laughs> in bandages and he's punching out bad guys. It's certainly, mm. for the look of the guy... Much more of an unknown soldier prototype than that issue of Our Fighting Forces and the issue 40-odd of Our Fighting Forces, some people claim, is an unknown soldier prototype. But we'll talk about more about the unknown soldier when he eventually pops up in Brave and the Bold, don't you worry. The other story, the greatest villain of all time, again, which is also like the two faces of Mr. X, reprinted in issue 10 of DC Special. This is the by issue 10 of DC Special podcast. It's quite intricate, actually. It's, it's basically features some guys that have been involved in some movie-making and one of them's doing some bad stuff, basically. I'm not going to say any more because it's worth reading. It's it's worth tracking yeah. down. It's a lot of fun. And the third story, mm. <laughs> the one we're going to do, the human eel, is going to tax my ability with accents to the absolute limit. <laughs> so, listeners, without further ado, we're going to crack on with the second story we're going to do for this episode. Published originally, as we say, in Showcase Issue 5 in September 1956. As you know, Pete normally does the captioning when we do these stories, and helpfully this story is narrated entirely by its lead character. And obviously because Peter does the captioning, he's going to narrate it. So without further ado, we begin. We have a headshot close-up of Drew. He looks very much like a an escapee from Captain Scarlet and the Misterons, as he tells us... He was the most brazen of international criminals, a slippery fish who slithered from one continent to another in an effort to keep ahead of the law. And it was my assignment to end forever the infamous career of... The Human human Eel. So this first panel is obviously representative of the story. We see Drew. He's wearing a windsheet jacket and trousers. He's obviously on a dock somewhere. And the Human Eel is jabbing him with a burst of electricity. And he's sort of surrounded by a burst of electricity. Gosh! It's all about sci-fi already. The Eel is zapping Drew and making Drew drop his gun. And as this is happening, Drew is saying, He's using his shock mechanism, just like an electric eel. (laughs) Ha ha! There isn't a man in the world who can overcome me, the eel. Can I get this bit out of the way? The fact that he's called the eel, the fact that Plastic Man was called Eel O'Brien. Yeah. You know, that association was very prominent in my brain (laughs) when I was reading it. There's not really much to connect them. No. There's a few moments of imagery which kind of do kind of call back Plastic Man, which are quite interesting. Hmm. I've got some other thoughts that will save till after the story. Good, good. (laughs) Panel two then. Drew's narration says... As an international police agent, I've been in some crucial situations. Like that day I waited in a Paris sewer. We see Drew, very sallow-faced chap, doesn't look too happy, surrounded by some French police officers. There's an open manhole above them, there's ladders, there's some pipes and wheels and stuff around. The senior police French officer is saying, Monsieur Drew, if your information is correct, these will be a great day for the law all over the world. And Drew replies, Let's hope so. But locating the eel is one thing. Capturing him is quite another. Drew's narration continues for panel three. As I waited in the ominous shadows, I grimly thought back to the many times my elusive quarry had harried the police of a dozen nations. And Drew says out loud, This time I must not fail. Once and for all, the world must be rid of the eel and his empire of crime. First caption of page two. Drew continues. I recalled another situation with the Panama police a year before. This is fascinating. Listeners, really, get a hold of this story and try and read it, because it's brilliant. 
I was enthusing hugely after I read all these stories. I wanted to do all three stories. I wanted us to start a new podcast that deals exclusively in praise for issue five of Showcase, where we just do a panel at a time, but he wasn't up mm. for it. He says no. So maybe after we've done every no. Earth 2 and DC Legacy story, and maybe after we've done Dilates for Hero, and maybe after we've done Challenges of the Unknown, he'll let me do a Showcase 5 podcast. We'll see, we'll see what happens. Stay tuned. <laughs> it's a great scene. It's a great scene. There's a raging river. There's a bridge. And there's a figure looking as though he's about to escape under the bridge. And there's a, a launch. There's a boat zipping across the surface of the water towards them. You see palm trees and buildings in the background. It's very lush, very international. And the voice from the boat is saying, He's slipping through that narrow overflow pipe. We cannot reach the other side of the dam in time to catch him. And just before he disappears out of view, the eel says, Ha ha! Good try, my friends. What a pity you're not slender enough to follow me. Ah, the human eel, you see, he's all slinky. Mm. Drew's narration for panel three, page two. And a month after that, in Argentina, when he challenged his mortal enemy and fellow criminal Zorak to public combat. Yes, this is another very dynamic panel. We're obviously in some kind of marketplace. We can see a vendor in the background under an awning. It looks like he's peddling bananas. There's a couple of pith-helmeted police officers watching what's going on. As It looks as though the aforementioned Zorak is strangling the eel. Zorak's a kind of thicker-set fellow, but the eel is obviously triggering his electrical burst powers that he was using at the start. One of the police officers is saying, Look, the eel is shocking Zorak with his electric suit. Zorak is struggling and says, I... I must let go, or the current will kill me. And it's a change of location. Police intervention stopped the battle, but both men escaped. Later, in New York, I myself fell victim to the eel's craftiness. Again, another panel. This is the one that gave me proper um, sort of Plastic Man flashbacks. Mm. The eel's at the top of a ladder at the side of what looks like a rooftop water storage tank. The lid's off, and we can see that Drew is struggling inside. The eel is, he looks very much like the Joker in this panel. Yeah. He's pointing down at Drew and the eel is saying, it is a simple matter, Agent Drew. If you keep afloat long enough, there is hope help will arrive. If not, poof! And from the water, Drew says, you, you, you madman. And the caption for the next panel. Of course, I managed to survive, but I paid a heavy price for five hours of treading water. Yes, that's all these panels so far have a nice little ripple effect because we've been flashing back and this is the mm. last of them. Drew is in a doctor's office. He's fixing his shirt. He's obviously just been examined. We can see the doctor's certificate on the wall, all the books behind him. It looks as if, it looks as if he's got his computer open in front of him. <laughs> I mean, from the black and white reprint and showcase present showcase, so it might not be a computer, but it looks mm. as if he's got his, his, um, his Apple Mac open. <laughs> like it must be a case. <laughs> yeah. The doctor has a stethoscope around his, in his collar. He's neat moustache, neat glasses, very tidy-looking fellow, and he's saying to Drew, Oh, that exertion strained a vital heart muscle, Drew. A year's rest and you'll be shipshape again. Meanwhile, you must avoid high places where lack of sufficient oxygen could cause further strain. Yes, I understand, Doctor. The flashbacks end. We're back in the Parisian sewer system. A very moody shot of Drew as he's lit from the side as he's thinking, But how can I rest while the eel is still at large? Especially with a break like this, locating the rendezvous spot where his Paris gang is coming to pay him off. Final panel of page two, but only on page two. Drew and the policeman are looking down the sewers, and the police captain says to Drew, Monsieur, can you be certain of your underworld tip about this meeting? Yes, this is the eel's first stop on the worldwide trip to collect payoffs, and... Wait, listen! And in the first panel of page three, we see a figure, a silhouetted figure, approaching them through the sewers. 
Drew says, He's coming. And the French policeman says, At last! Drew's narration for panel two. And as my adversary came into view... Yeah, this is cracking. It looks like he's been lit from underneath. He's a very scary-looking figure. He does remind me of the Joker. Drew pulls a pistol and says, Throw up your hands, Eel. You're finished. Oh, and this is good. It's a very handy dialogue from the Eel as he says, Agent Frank Drew, hasn't your poor, honest heart given up the fight yet? (laughs) We can see that the Eel is carrying a suitcase which has several stickers on it. He's obviously a good tourist. (laughs) He likes to remember where he's been. Drew's narration for panel three. Abruptly, he whirled around and... Yeah, we can see beside the eel in panel two, there's a sort of wheel on the wall, one of those ones for controlling the the pressure in the pipe. And he's grabbed it in panel three and turned it open and some water scooshes out, which knocks Drew's hand from his gun. As Frank Drew says, Look out, the eel has opened an emergency water pipe. He's trying to flood us. His narration for panel four. Frantically, I lunged forward as the eel slithered up, but all my fingers clawed was his suitcase label. And we can see in this panel, the eel has made his way up a ladder out of the sewer trying to escape. And as Drew grabs for the suitcase, he peels off one of the stickers and we can see a picture of a lion. That's interesting. Mm. The eel is mocking him, though, as he goes up the ladder, saying, Not quite fast enough, my friend. Ha ha! And we get a nice bit of touristy stuff in the next panel. Drew narrates, As I rush to the surface in hot pursuit, and we see a very large, fancy Blackpool Tower-type structure. (laughs) The eel is running towards it. Drew follows him, saying, He's heading up the Eiffel Tower. That other elevator. I can follow, perhaps stop him from reaching the top. Quickly, I started the other elevator and wriggled through the escape hatch, but the eel was already waiting for me. This is an excellent panel. Very moody. Mm. Do we know who drew this story? It's John William Eli who drew this, and it was Jack Miller who wrote it. Okay. So there we are. Yes, it's very stylishly done from Mr. Eli, because we see almost in silhouette the structure of the tower and the the climbing lifts and eel and Drew on top of them. Mm-hmm. And the eel is firing down. We see a couple of bam, bams. Drew obviously has pulled his own gun. We can see that. And he thinks from on top of his lift. No chance to shoot the cables and foul the mechanism. He's got me covered. I'll have to ride all the way up. However, Drew's narration for the first panel of page four. But all at once. And we see Drew looking panicked as he grabs his chest. My, my heart. The height. It's affecting my heart. Everything. Going Black. And in panel two, we see that the eel's elevator seems to be dropping back down. As Drew's comes to halt, we see that Drew's collapsed on the roof of his elevator. As he descends in silhouette, the eel is saying, Ha ha! He fell into my trap like a child! When will he learn that no man on earth is smart enough to catch the eel? Slow dissolve, Drew's narration for panel three of page four. When I came to, the sombre faces of the French officers surrounded me. Drew's waking up, the police are looking concerned. Drew says, I... I survived. The eel. Captain Georges, did you get him? No, Monsieur Drew. Like the eel he is, he slipped through our hands. After a few hours in the hospital, I rejoined Captain Georges at the police precinct. Yes, this looks like a very fancy office that Captain Georges has. We can see the mm. the light outside for the very fancy light fitting. The captain's in the process of saying to a very thoughtful-looking Drew, You say your informant knew only of this one Paris meeting the eel was to keep. The others, they are not known. Right. He had his luggage with him, probably intended to leave at once for any of a dozen nations. But where? (laughs) He stalks like the brazen lion. Lion? Of course. When I tried to grab the eel in the sewer, I missed and tore off a suitcase label that covered a lion trademark of a British manufacturer. The eel's next stop is Egypt. 
Drew makes for the door, and the final panel on page four is the captain is saying, What makes you think that, my friend? The symbol of the British lion is hated in Egypt, Captain. The eel covered it because he's going there. Notify the Cairo police. I'll fly there at once. And so we reach the first panel, page five. At the Cairo airport, Police Commissioner Axar Ben gave me a verbal report. Yes, we see Drew and the Police Commissioner outside a large aeroplane. It's a quite a globe-trotting episode, this. It's a lot of fun. Mm. Um, the Commissioner is saying, Following your message, Agent Drew, my men trailed members of Egypt's most notorious gang to the Great Pyramid of Wisdom. A pyramid, eh? That would be a good spot for a secret payoff. Let's go out there. As we reached our destination... Yep, she was a small car arriving at one of the pyramids. I have to say, I've only been abroad a few times, right, in my life. I've only been to a few places. But in my very slight and insignificant travels, I have been up the Eiffel Tower and I have been inside one of the pyramids in Cairo. At Cairo. So wow. this is quite interesting. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> David Steele, Manhunter. Yes, <laughs> I always have to go to New York and get stuck in a, a water tower at some point. So yes... <laughs> This small Egyptian police car is approaching one of the pyramids, and from inside we hear Drew's voice saying, Sure enough, there's the eel. I'll take him on, Axar. You handle the others. Yes, and we can see in the distance the eel and a few other figures standing at the base of the pyramid. And as the gang scattered in all directions... The eel is climbing up the side of the pyramid, Drew following him. Drew says, I'm going to hook you this time, eel, for sure. Ha-ha! You're in for another disappointment, Agent Drew. Higher and higher he lured me. And I realised why. And panel four is a close-up of Drew looking very pained and sweaty as he says, He knows that Hyde can weaken me again. Careful, Agent Drew. Mustn't tax that big bad heart of yours. Panel five. The eel is almost at the top of the pyramid. Drew is still managing to keep up, though, and Drew says, It won't work this time, eel. Once you reach the top, the only way you can go is down. Correction, my friend. There is one other direction. Up! In the final panel of page six, Drew looks around because the eel seems to have vanished. Drew says, What? Where did he, he disappear to? And Drew's narration for the first panel of page six says, My question was answered by a blast of gunfire from above. Yes, and we see suddenly there's a helicopter with a rope ladder hanging from it that the eel has climbed onto. It's bearing him away. The eel fires a couple of gunshots down at Frank Drew. The eel's saying, Ha ha ha! I've toyed with you long enough, Drew. This is your finish! Drew cries, A copter! I was so busy concentrating on the eel, I didn't even hear it. But wait! That slip, falling from his pocket. Yes, and it's not very clear because I'm reading it in black and white, but it appears to be a small diamond of paper, or something, falling away from the eel being borne away on the rope ladder. Mm. Drew narrates the next bit, saying, Returning to solid ground, I studied this latest clue. And we see Drew standing talking to, to Commissioner Askar Ben. And the Commissioner is saying, The eel's paper tells us nothing. It is simply a list of inoculations that he has probably taken. Yes, Askar, but it's for definite serums. You see, each country requires its visitors to be inoculated against various epidemic diseases. And this particular combination of shots may reveal the eel's next world stop since inoculation requirements differ from one nation to the next. Fantastic. A slight change in location. A quick visit to the Cairo clinic bore out my theory. Yep, and in conversation with another medical man. Only the Union of South Africa requires this particular combination of inoculations, Mr. Drew, says the medical man holding up the list. And Drew replies, Then the eel will probably make for the biggest city there. Johannesburg. 
And so my incredible manhunt, which had already touched on four continents, continued. Yes, a nice aerial shot of, of a map here as we see some arrows directing us from Buenos Aires to, to France, through Europe, down to Cairo, and then obviously taking us down to Johannesburg in South Africa. But in Johannesburg, I ran into a dead end. Yes, and we see Drew in his very, very well-fitted out hotel room. Some nice shutters and nice desk lamp there. He's on the phone to his boss at home. He's saying, That's right, Chief. And if I don't get a lead soon, I'm afraid the eel will be taking off for his next stop, if he is in the city. Down the line, his boss says, Keep with it, Drew. At least there's one consolation. Eel's mortal enemy, Zorak, was just captured in Argentina. The chief's words hit me like a thunderbolt. Drew looks wide-eyed here as he says, Zorak, captured! Great Scott, don't announce it to the press. This is my chance to lure the eel to me. Whatever you say, Drew, but play it safe, comes the reply down the line. That's the final panel of page six. We arrive at the top of page seven. Two hours later, I studied the eel's bait in a mirror at a small costume shop. Yes, this obviously also ties into the the other story, <laughs> Elements of Disguise, yeah. purely accidentally listeners. Mm. And it's actually, it's interesting, there are Elements of Disguise in all three stories in Showcase 5. Yeah. I wonder if that's mm-hmm. deliberate or just or just a, a nice coincidence. Showcase presents Makeup Artists. <laughs> yeah, that's issue. The unpublished issue five and a half. <laughs> it almost stimmied the, the Silver Age of Comics as soon as it started. <laughs> we see that Drew's been made up. It's obviously a full face mask that he's wearing because Zorak has, has much heavier set features. The little costumer behind him is a small fellow with a neat moustache and little glasses on top of his head. We can see a rack with um, some suits and hangers hanging behind. Looking into the mirror, Drew, made up as Zorak says... It's perfect. This Zorak disguise would fool anyone. Now, one more prop and I'll be ready. Is there a marine store nearby? And the little costumer fellow says, Indeed there is, sir. Just one block down the street. Shortly, I went into my act as the infamous Zorak from Argentina. Yes, this looks like a very dodgy establishment. Look at the pattern on that on that couch. Look at the, the plaster work. Look at the giant plants. You see Zorak, in inverted commas, Drew in disguise, looming over a small, shady-looking receptionist. Drew in disguise says, You pass the word to the eel. Zorak challenges him to a rematch. Do as I say, or I break you in pieces. I I will try, Zorak. Honest. He from Barcelona. Caption for Drew's caption for panel three. I covered every joint in town, playing the same scene. Yeah, he's in almost that dodgy bar here. A <laughs> couple of geezers with um, a table in front of them. Someone else that looks a bit creepy peering through the, the curtain behind them. The false Zorak has grabbed the two drinkers by their necks almost. He's pulling them together and he's saying, Tell the eel that Zorak will be at Pier 3 tonight to fight him to the finish if he has the nerve. And one of the frightened drinkers says, Yeah, yeah, sure. A slow dissolve. I'd banked in the fanatic rivalry between the two infamous men to lure my man, and it paid off that evening. Yeah, we're back at a dockside. I wonder if it's the dockside that we saw in the opening panel. Drew in disguise as Zorak is in the foreground of the panel, and the eel, looking very much like the Joker, the way he's reprinted in black and white. Mm-hmm. I wish I could see what he was, what colour of suit he was wearing, but there we are. Maybe I'll, I'll track down a copy of Showcase 5 by the time I have to put the panels on Instagram. <laughs> the eel is slinky in in the background saying, Hello, bulgy one! Apparently you are tired of living. And Zorak, in inverted commas, replies, Ha! I have a surprise for you, eel. And then in panel five, we see that very quickly, Drew has 
whisked off his mask, whisked off the bulk jacket that made him look like Zorak, and he says, Reach, Slinky, and no tricks. He pulls a gun on the eel who replies, Agent True in disguise! So you have hooked the eel at last, eh? Ha ha! And then he says in the next panel, Here, have a shock on me! And he blasts Drew with a burst of electricity which makes Drew drop his gun. And that indeed does look very much like the opening sequence in the first panel. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. The final panel of page seven, a bit of a narrative jump. The eel is legging it. There's a massive sort of bridge structure, Mm -hmm. quite a big bridge structure. It doesn't seem to be any, (laughs) none of the previous sort of panels there hinted at it whatsoever. Very large suspension bridge and the eel has managed to run away from Drew and start climbing up one of the towers. Drew in silhouette arrives and says, There he goes. Luring me upward again. I defy you to follow me, Drew. Ha ha! It's rather high up here, you know. So we arrive in page eight, the caption for the first panel. Little did he realise it. Height was no longer his ally. Very interesting here. We're looking down towards Drew. We can see the eel at the top of the panel, standing amongst the bridge structure. Eel is saying, My, my, you are courageous. But the thin air up here will weaken you greatly, Drew. You will soon be no match for me. That's what you think, Buster, says Drew from below. And then Drew draws level with the eel. Narrating panel two, he says, I can still remember the expression on the eel's face when he got a closer look at me. Yeah, we see that Drew has actually got some kind of equipment on. There's something obscuring his features. The eel says, an, an oxygen mask. Right, eel. I had the foresight to pick one up at a marine shop and wear it under my Zorak disguise. Now you'd better throw in the sponge. Why? You'll be no harm to me once I cut off your supply of oxygen. Ha ha ha! Infuriated, he lunged at me and became locked in a death grip high over the water. And we see that Eel is trying to pull away the hose that comes out of the tank on Drew's back and connects him to the mask that Drew has on his face. Drew thinks, He's got his hand in my breathing tube. And then Drew narrates the next panel. As I shut off the air supply, my eyes blurred, my head reeled. Had the eel outwitted me again, and for the last time? Yes, Drew looks wide-eyed, and we can see that the the eel has grabbed the hose and is gripping it, obviously, to stop the movement of air. Off camera, we hear the eel's voice as he says, You're a fool, Drew. No one defeats the eel. No one. And Drew thinks, Can't breathe. Got to shake him off. Drew's narration for panel five. Gathering my last ounce of strength, I drove an uppercut to the eel's jaw, and the unexpected happened. Yeah, Drew connects, and the eel falls backwards. There's a burst of electricity and a sound effect. Drew says, Good grief, he landed on the switch that turns on the shock mechanism in his suit. Eel's out for the count in the next panel. And as I examined his unconscious form... Yeah, Drew opens up the eel's jacket, and then he says, Here's the answer. He rigged his suit with wire and hooked it up to a miniature condenser and power unit. Well, I'd better put the eel behind bars before he wakes up. Yes. We can see a good shot of the eel. We can see all the the electrical gizmos attached inside of his Mm -hmm. suit jacket. He does look like the Joker. Very, very scary. So, we reach the final panel of the final page. And Drew narrates it, saying, So, a while later, in the nearest police precinct, We can see Drew making his way in, through the open doorway of the 3rd Precinct Police Department, Johannesburg. He's carrying the eel over his shoulders. <laughs> I'm glad he's got that oxygen mask, frankly, <laughs> given his state of health. And as he enters the police building, he's saying, I guess people all over the world will breathe a little easier tonight. The once infamous eel will no longer be free to haunt their lives. And a tiny caption says, 
The, the end. end. Well, that was very exciting. Mm-hmm. International travelling and adventure and a flawed hero with imperfect health. That was great fun. Yeah, absolutely. It was just... Uh... A trailblazing, globe-trotting adventure. Mm. Rollicking adventure, some might say. <laughs> uh, no, I really enjoyed that. <laughs> Good. But yeah, as you said, all three stories in this are really, really fun and interesting. But yeah, I really enjoyed that one. So, whilst we were doing a story that you said, and I was making a couple of early observations, you said you had something you, you were going to hold till the end of the story. Yeah. Okay. A couple of things, actually. This is not the first time a character called the Eel has appeared in DC Comics. <laughs> of course it isn't. <laughs> The eel was a one-off villain for Star Spangled Kid and Stripesy. Oh, really? Cool. Way back in World's Finest Issue 6. That came out on the 8th of May, 1942. Is that the one that you've got? No. <laughs> What's the one that you've got? I've got Issue 9. Please get Issue 9 of World's Finest, listeners. Don't it make you sick? <laughs> <laughs> but... In saying that, Marvel has a couple of better-known characters called the Eel. The first one debuted in Strange Tales number 112 from 1963, but he died in Ghost Rider 21 in 1976. Gosh! Yeah, another villain took up the role in Power Man and Iron Fist, issue 92, and that was in 1983. I've got issue 92 of Power Man and Iron Fist. There we go. Yeah, hey. I've got issue 9 of World's Finest. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> he just likes Robin in, listeners, if you pardon the expression. Yeah, as I said, they're probably more well-known. Dale was a member of the Serpent Society, mm. uh, among other groups. I think there's a few others. Um, I can't remember which was in which. But, yeah, again, similar powers. They've got electrical powers and, you know, skinny and can slink through things. Mm. And again, you know, it's just interesting comparisons. I don't know much about the Star-Spangled Kid and Stripesy villain. Uh, we might look into that in a future episode, perhaps. Who knows? Who knows? Yeah, we're planning, probably near the end of the whole extravaganza, we're planning an episode where basically I will just sit and go, oh, ah, oh, as Pete wheels off the massive list that he has put together of <laughs> characters that were basically published by DC and Marvel that had the same name. Mm. Every so often I'll find something and tell him that he, and something he doesn't know about it, but I'm forever being told, oh, I've just found, all right, okay, so... That'll be an episode quite near the end, probably probably after we do issue 10 of Crisis, just to kind of <laughs> increase your anticipation. Mm. <laughs> there we are. <laughs> and of course, you know, as we've said, we've hinted at in the past, actually, there are quite a few characters published by DC and Marvel that have similar names, quite prominent characters that share names, and that will obviously mm-hmm. feed into a couple of episodes that we'll be doing much further down the line. Definitely. So yes, anything else to say about Agent Frank Drew versus the Eel? Not a lot, apart from I really enjoyed it. That was it. Yeah, me too. Good fun. I wish we had time to do all of the stories from Showcase Issue 5. Sadly, we don't. You never know, listeners, if enough of you campaign strongly enough or if we run out of things to talk about much further down the line. We might do them, but as I say, you can read the other two stories in your copies of DC Special Issue 10. So, at the top, we said this episode was prompted by the appearance of Manhunter 2070 in the final three issues. Well, the final three issues of the initial run of DC Showcase. And that's an interesting period because Showcase was basically sort of winding up at this point. Prior to Showcase featuring Manhunter 2070, there had been mm-hmm. the characters of Nightmaster, Fire here, yep. and of course Jason's Quest. Yes. I don't know any of them. Huh? I never have at any point. Yeah, I know. It's terrible, isn't it? Mm. Fire here intrigues me because I think I get the I've got something tells me Joe Kubert's involved and it makes me sort of yeah. it puts me in mind a tomahawk and I wonder if maybe they all crossed over or teamed up at some point, maybe they did. But Showcase was dying on its legs at this its last legs at this point. Um the Manhunter feature is written and drawn by Mike Sikowski. Of Justice League fame. Mm. 
he's obviously raised his game a little bit since the Justice League stories of his that we did. But or obviously we should remember at this point he was also handling Wonder Woman in her sort of civilian mm-hmm. Diana Rigg type situation yep. at this point. That, lengthy period when she wasn't a familiar Amazonian princess. So, if you're ready for it, listeners, Pete and I are now going to read all three issues of Showcase 91, 92, 93. No, we're just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> We've kept you long enough. <laughs> we're, not, we're not going to read all three 23-page stories. Thankfully, I've come up with some summaries. So just to give you an idea what they're about. Mm-hmm. Basically, it's kind of obvious that Mike Sikowski's been watching Star Trek yeah, or maybe he's got an early print of the Hammer film Moon Zero Two because that was the biggest sort of <laughs> things that I was sort of reminded of whilst reading them. Mm. Starker was first actually introduced not in Showcase ninety one in the final three pages of issue ninety. There's a little three page prologue at the end of that, or indeed an epilogue to the final part of Jason's Quest, if you like, that just sets up the bare bones of Starker and adds as a bit of a, a curtain raiser, probably just to try and get anyone who's reading Jason's quest to come back for the next issue. And of course, the next issue, issue 91, Starker's first full appearance, the first issue we're going to talk about quickly, was published on the 28th of April, 1970. The cover shows the hero walking into a sort of dodgy-looking bar, which perhaps may well have been the main influence for um, the cantina in Star Wars, who can say? And we see the Manhunter in a sort of white space suit and a bunch of various frog-like-looking aliens all being surprised to see him. It doesn't really happen in the story, which is called Planet of Death. We're introduced to Starker, for that is his name, the Manhunter, in his incarnation. He's on the Olympus 7 Pleasure Satellite, having fun with a couple of young ladies. Why? And the young ladies are never given names, <laughs> which is terrible, quite frankly. Starker gets an alert from his robot buddy, Arky, that three convicted killers have escaped from the Deimos Maximum Security Prison. Starker drops off his two lady friends and then travels to the planet Phidos in pursuits. And while he's there, Starker battles killer plants and piranha birds before confronting the escaped villains. One of them, Lester, gets eaten by cannibal ants in a really horrific couple of panel sequences, which are well worth the admission. Starker, however, fights off a giant dragon lizard and then successfully apprehends the remaining baddies. So that's basically the plot of issue 91. Issue 92, published on the 11th of June, 1970, is the flashback episode that gives us his origin. Cover's very stark. He's standing in an asteroid looking at a cross. It's obviously some kind of ceremonial burial asteroid belt. He's looking down at the cross and he's saying, You can rest easy now, Dad. I got them all. Every last one of them. And who are them? Well, Starker and his two lady friends, who still don't have names, are enjoying the vibe in the resort city of Janus uh, on Jupiter when they spot a poster offering 100,000 credits for the capture of Starker, the bounty hunter. So that's quite interesting. The poster is the responsibility of the Brotherhood of Space. Mm. Uh, We don't really see anything more about them. But the girls want to know what's going on, so Starker tells them his origin. He's basically the story of the son of a miner who is taken by space pirates as a galley boy after they kill his father and steal his claim. As he grows older... He trains and prepares and finally gets his revenge on the pirates, killing some of them and turning the rest of them into the authorities. So that's basically what you get in issue 92. It's a story of vengeance. Issue 93, which is published on the 28th of July 1970. Cover for that one. It almost takes place at the end of the story because we see Starker stretched out against the rock with a shadow looming over him and the title of the story is saying, Beware of the Red-Haired Greenies. Now, if, like, if you're like <laughs> Peter and I and you come from West Central Scotland, a greenie means something very different to what happens in the story. Mm. Issue 93, Archie the Robot sends Starker after an embezzler 
who is heading to the planet Zodan with two million in stolen credits. The inhabitants of Zodan are known as Greenies. They're all compulsive thieves. After a few encounters, Starker learns that Wallen, that's the embezzler, has gone on to the planet Zoldar. Starker follows and finds him in a saloon where Wallen has lost his stolen money gambling. Starker learns from Wallen that the swindlers plan to head to the gambling city of Chandor and the two of them follow the baddies on horse-like animals called glyphs. They are ambushed by the thieves but Starker manages to shoot them both and recover the money. And then Starker and Wallen in turn steal the baddies' glyphs so that they can continue to cross the desert. But they soon come across the apparently unconscious form of a female Greenie, one of the inhabitants of this planet. And it turns out she's pulling a contract with her sister, who ambushes them. And they both shoot Starker and leave him for dead, taking the two million credits that Wallen had stolen and Wallen so they can get the reward for capturing him as well. Mm. Starker manages to get to his feet, but he falls unconscious. And he's then approached by three, inverted commas, grotesque beings who resemble primitive cavemen. And the final panel I will read to you now. The caption says, With a grunt of anger, one suddenly raises a crude stone axe. And this very Conan-looking like caveman-like figure raises his axe. And then a final caption says, And... But you'll find out in the next Manhunter 2070, if there is one, that depends on you, the buying public. And listeners, guess what? There wasn't another issue. (laughs) Manhunter 2070 will be seen again very, very briefly in the podcast when we do issue 100 of the Revived Showcase later in the 70s. True. Uh But we do not get a proper resolution to the story. Now, Starker is one of these other sort of futuristic characters that gets used in the Twilight series that we talked about when we did our episode on Tommy Tomorrow while ago if you remember that one so starker is seen there enjoying his life oh fantastic yes and he also mm-hmm. is referenced in another series by walt simonson which is called the judas coin yes that's right huh he's referenced in that as well which kind of gives i don't actually have that story so my researches on this are very limited at the moment but it gives him a little bit of a resolution mm-hmm. and a bit of conclusion so thanks to walt simonson for that if you want to find out what happens next to starker the Manhunter of 2070, check out The Judas Coin by Walt Simonson and you'll see how he ends up. Or just wait another 48 years. <laughs> <laughs> Why, what's good? Yes, of course. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to think about because Manhunter 2070 <laughs> is now 48 years from now, but when, when the comic was published, it was 100 years in the future. The, the very optimistic thing yeah. at the start of the story is just how <laughs> mankind has conquered space and has travelled all over the galaxy and met all these aliens. Yeah. It's fascinating to see that we're how, how close we've got to that future at this point. <laughs> so, with all of that retrospective manhuntering, there are still some manhunters to come. Oh, yes. As Pete mentioned at the top, mm. there's the story of the manhunter robots, which we're covering the jelly. There will be an issue of First Issue Special by Jack Kirby that we'll talk about. Mm-hmm. So all that's to come. But we'll quickly say that in the future, there was a manhunter series that ran for 24 issues between 1988 and 1990, which was the first comic that our very good friend Steve Higgins ever had a subscription to. So that's quite interesting. Oh, gosh. There you are. Following that series, there was another comic called Manhunter, which was published from 1994 to 1995 in the wake of Zero Hour, which made it to 13 issues, including a Zero issue. I have a full set of them. How many have I read? Probably none, apart from the Zero issue, which I read at the time. I've read them all recently, yeah. Really? Yeah, I have. It's, uh, Stephen Grant wrote it. Actually, I really quite enjoyed it. It's it's very early 90s action-orientated, but mm. it's a lot of fun and does 
tweak a bit of the Manhunter legacy in an interesting way. Interesting. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it was obviously published at the same time that Starman, the James Robinson Starman started, and the Doctor Fate rebrand Fate started. So it's, it was quite interesting that these three sort of legacy names are mm. all... You know, being used, these legacy characters are being rebooted at this time. It's quite interesting. Yeah. I read Fate for the first time. Was it last year, the year before? For the first time. <laughs> read it all through. I had no idea how much the GSA were actually involved with it, which is quite, quite, pl- I wish I had read it at the time. Yeah. And between 2004 and 2009, and this character also had a few appearances in Birds of Prey and elsewhere, there was the character of Kate Spencer. Yay. Manhunter. First book ran to 38 issues. And those are the ones that had their own series, but also there were Manhunters that guest starred or appeared in other titles. For example, we had the mm-hmm. one that appeared in Secret Society of Supervillains, which we'll be covering much later on. Yes. And also we had the other Manhunter that appeared in The Power Company, that great Kurt Busiek series, which I really enjoyed. They both spin out of the Walt Simonson Manhunter series from Detective Comics, is that right, those two? Yes, they do. There's strong connections there. Yeah, and of course we'll be covering that series when we reach it, obviously. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Power Company, I've got a few issues of that. Planning ahead, I think I've, I'm certain I've got all the Manhunter covers, so they, they'll pop up in the socials, probably mm-hmm. when we do the, the Walt Simonson Detective Comics Manhunter stories, so watch out for that in about a year and a half or so, listeners. Indeed, yeah. <laughs> to do a quick rundown of the Manhunters, because I find this amazing. To recap, right, okay. Yeah, to recap, we've got the original Paul Kirk Manhunter, Manhunter in title only, followed by Dan Richards, then Rick Nelson, then the other Paul Kirk, then we had Mark Shaw. Then you had the Robot Manhunters introduced. Mm. Then we had the Secret Society of Supervillains one. Then we had Chase Lawler. Then we had the Power Company one. Then we had Kate Spencer. And in her series, it was strongly hinted that her son had powers and was going to be a future Manhunter. And then we had Manhunter 2070. So I think Manhunter's probably got a bigger legacy than Starman, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, I suppose if you count the two Paul Kirks and Rick Nelson all separate, then, oh dear, yeah. It's all quite confusing, isn't it? Hopefully as we go on, we'll be able to map out some kind of clarity for it all, I think. Oh, I'm sure we will. I'm sure we will. Yes. Stay tuned, listeners. Yes, yes. We're going to save some more discussion about those titles for when we do some more Manhunter stuff in the future. Yeah. But there will be some covers from these series up in the socials for this episode just to kind of pad out the bonus content. So make sure you check out the socials for all those. Now, before we go, listeners, I have two copies of Showcase Issue 91 the first full appearance of Manhunter 2070. And I'm going to run a little competition. I'm afraid only for our UK listeners, because postage overseas is completely prohibitive nowadays. So listeners, to win a copy of Showcase 91, in reasonable nick, with a Thorpe and Porter price stamp on the cover, but in reasonable nick, what we will ask you to do is, either on Twitter, please retweet one of our tweets for this episode and say that you enjoyed listening to the Earth 2 podcast. Use our handle, podcast underscore Earth 2. On Instagram, please share one of the posts that we post on our Instagram account to your own story and mention our handle, say that you enjoy listening to the Earth 2 podcast. And perhaps on Facebook, if you want to share one of our posts and tag our page in it. Um, We'll keep an eye on anyone that does this and then we'll pick up one of the names at random from a very small hat. And if you're successful, I will ask you to send us your name and address and... I will send you a copy of Issue 91 of Showcase featuring Manhunter 2070. How exciting is that? It's quite exciting. Fantastic. Yes. If anyone wants to, to write to us about their favourite Manhunter or indeed check out all the bonus material on our socials, where do they? what should they do? Where should they go? Well, if you want to write to us, you can email us at theearth2podcast at gmail.com. Our social media handles are on Facebook and Instagram. It's the Earth 2 Podcast. 
And on Twitter, it's podcast underscore Earth2, and it's the number two for all of our social media. It certainly is. So, yeah, listeners, please do take part, because what Pete's already got a copy of Issue Night on the showcase, so I can't just give it to him. It's no use. I gave him a spare copy of JLA 78. I was going to run a competition for that, and he said, but I don't have Issue 78 of JLA, and I went, all right then. So, <laughs> <laughs> And there will be... There will be other competitions in the future, listeners. So if that's yes, what I'm saying, to, to stay tuned. I don't know what is. Mm. On that note. Yes, I've been Peter. And I've been David. Thank you for joining us. Keep hunting those men. And we'll see you next time on... The, the Earth 2, Two Podcast. Podcast. Transmatter Cube activated. Return coordinate set for Earth Prime. The Showcase 5 Podcast. <laughs> the Showcase 5 <laughs> Podcast. <laughs>